Well, I'd like to invite you to turn your Bible then to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. Last week, we finished uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, which is really a, a good time now to take a little bit of a break, really just to hit the pause button on Matthew for a little while. Next week, we're going to have a special speaker come up, uh, Pastor Leroy Williams, will be preaching to you next Sunday, and he's actually not from around here, he's actually from the Deep South. Uh, he is the pastor of the church that Dwight and Marianne go to when they're down south. So um, we're trying to build a relationship uh, with that church down there. First Baptist, is it? Melbourne. First Baptist of Melbourne, Florida. So um, Pastor Leroy will be here preaching in our worship service next week, so it'll be a, a real treat to have him with us. But then after that, for the next... A uh, month or two after Pastor Williams preaches, um, we're going to go ahead and continue to hit the pause button on the book of Matthew, and we're going to be going through some psalms. So we're going to have a little bit of a summer psalms series, um, so a month or two of walking through a psalm, which I think will be really refreshing for you all um, and for myself as we just take a little bit of a break from Matthew, um, and then we'll get back into Matthew after that. But this morning I thought it would be good to take some time to discuss a vision for our church. Where should our church be going? What direction should our church be heading in? What really should be at the core of who we are as the church of God? So I want to take some time again this morning in Acts chapter 2 to reflect on questions like this. Um, I've had the privilege of being here for about a year at this point. I came as the interim pastor in July, um, and there have been a lot of changes. There's been a lot of movement. There's a lot of things that have been changed. Um, maybe not necessarily things you notice. Um, for, for instance, things like a, a constitution. I mean, you may notice that, but the constitution has been changed. Remember last November, we voted out our previous one, voted in a new one. Uh, we've brought in a new statement of faith, uh, which, again, we haven't changed uh, the core of who we are or anything like that. We haven't changed our doctrine, per se, or you know, our, our stand on truth or orthodoxy, um, but we have changed our statement of faith. Uh, we've changed the name of the church, right? Gone from being known as Windsor Memorial, now being known as Windsor Christian Fellowship. Obviously, you've had to get used to a new pastor, um, and then finally, there's the new denomination that we're becoming a part of. We've left the American Baptist churches, and we've joined in with the Southern Baptist Convention. So there's a lot. When you start rattling it off that way, it doesn't feel like it's been maybe all that much. But you start rattling it off, and you start to realize, wow, a lot of the foundation has been completely shifted and moved around. And so hopefully now that all that is straight, going forward, we can really press on and do well and, and, and work for the cause of Christ. But needless to say, in the span of that year, you've had to deal with a lot of change. And really, I, I commend you for it, for being willing to move and to change. That although things have been moved around, that you're willing to be supportive. That I've, I've talked with many of you, and you're very supportive of what has been going on. Um, because let's face it, it's not easy to change, is it? <laughs> I don't even like change in my daily routine of when I brush my teeth. Forget about what goes on with church stuff. So change is never easy. But again, I thank you for being willing to trust me, to trust uh, the leadership team as we pray, as we think through, as we implement uh, 
what we believe are to be the right moves for the body of Christ here in Windsor. But I'm thankful and I'm confident. So I'm thankful to you all for being willing to to move and to change and and to, to allow a new foundation really to be built right underneath your feet. But I'm also confident. I'm not confident because of me and my gifts or my abilities. I'm not even confident in you because of your gifts and your abilities. I'm confident because I'm confident in God. I'm confident that God is going to do a great work in the town of Windsor. I'm confident for his plan in the church at large, the universal church, and I'm confident in his plan for our church here. I'm confident in the way that he gathers his church together. I'm confident in the mission that he sends his church on. So the bottom line, if you haven't caught it, is I am very confident in what God is going to do in this place. So whether you've been a part of this church as long as you can remember, or if you have recently come to check us out, I'm glad you're here because this passage in Acts chapter 2 will, by God's grace, show us all what should be at the very core of not even just necessarily our church, but of every church. So by God's grace, Windsor Christian Fellowship will be known by these three particular things. We'll be known for God's gospel, we'll be known as God's community, and we'll be known to be on God's mission. And as we look at Acts chapter 2 this morning, I think we're clearly going to see these things. Starting in verse, chapter, or in verse 14 of chapter 2, you see that Peter begins preaching this incredible sermon. He's quoting large chunks of the Old Testament, and he's, he's correlating it all with what has recently happened in Jerusalem, with Christ on the cross. So, so keep in mind here that we're in the very beginning of the book of Acts. So all of this is coming on the heels of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, he ascends into heaven. And so here we are in Acts chapter 2. Everything's fresh. Jesus has just died, just came back to life. He just ascended into heaven. Okay, Acts 2, sermon, Peter's sermon And he looks at his audience and he tells them that they had crucified the Son of God. So this audience that he's talking to isn't necessarily just some casual group of people. No, this is the very group of people that had put Jesus to the death. And even though they had done this, Peter says that God had raised Jesus up from the dead because it was impossible for Jesus to be held by Jesus. Death. So Peter preaches this great sermon filled with all these Old Testament verses and look how the people respond in verse 37 to 47. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So again, Peter preaches this incredible sermon, quoting the Word of God. And verse 37 tells us that what the Word of God did to the hearts of those people was it cut their hearts wide open. Well, what a response! They hear the preaching of God's word and the spirit of God takes the word and cuts their heart right open. And so then they respond and they they ask the apostles, okay, now that our hearts are open, now that they've been cut open, what shall we do? And Peter says this in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So hearts that had been cut open with the word of God were now receptive to the message of the gospel. Peter tells them to repent of their sins. He tells them to be baptized, symbolizing the the washing away of their sins. Not that their baptism saved them, but that the baptism symbolized the washing away of sin. He tells them that the spirit of God is now going to enter their heart because it had recently been cut open by the word And the Spirit now is going to move into their heart and cause their heart to not be a heart of stone anymore, but to become a heart of flesh. So he gives them the gospel. Peter gives them the gospel. And in verse 41, we see the results of it being preached. A mass conversion. Literally thousands of souls were added to the kingdom of God in this moment. And I'm convinced that if we're going to have true growth as a community of faith, we need to have what Peter had here. We need to first have a deep understanding of the gospel, and we need to have a white-knuckled grip upon it. So what is the gospel? This, This should be the easiest question that anybody could ask a Christian. What is the gospel? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most incredible message, and it was devised in the mind of God before time even began. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ humbled himself, and he came to this earth, and he became obedient to death, even the death of a cross. And when he was on the cross, he atoned for our sins. And not only did he atone for our sins, not only did he take our sins and put them upon himself and bear them for us, but the perfection that he had gained in his life, he then gave to us. And then he was buried. And then he rose again from the dead. And in his resurrection, he gained victory over sin. He gained victory over death. He dealt the mortal blow to Satan. He crushed the head of Satan. The Apostle Paul boils it all down for us in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered unto you what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So what is the Gospel? The basics of the Gospel are all right there in the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus died. 
for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. And there is no better news than this. You cannot search the world and find better news than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our church has to understand this message. We have to understand this message. We have to study it. We have to know the implications of the gospel on our lives personally and as a, as a church. We've been entrusted with this message. We've been entrusted with the gospel. And we must know it well. You have to know the gospel. Which brings us to our commitment level. What our commitment level to the gospel must be. Our church has to have that white knuckled grip on the gospel. We need to hold it firmly. Where we don't have some kind of loose affiliation with the gospel. It's not some sort of thing like in Hollywood. Where we just kind of attach Jesus to our lives. It's not some sort of general understanding, but it's a grip so firm that no matter what happens in our personal lives, no matter what happens in our church, that we are holding on to the gospel. Many of you know the Apostle Paul's disposition to the gospel when you think of Romans chapter 1 and you think of what he famously said in verse 16. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And he proved it all throughout his life. Constantly heralding this message. You want to know what Paul was about? He was about the gospel. Going through modern day Turkey. Going through the Middle East. All these areas. And just preaching the singular message of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus had done. He proved that he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. By how he lived his life. A couple of chapters after Acts. We're in Acts chapter 2. But over in Acts chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. Uh, John and Peter are standing before the Sanhedrin, this group of Jewish leaders, and, and they look at these two guys and they say, stop talking about Jesus. And they look at those guys and they say, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. They weren't going to stop. They wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. They wouldn't stop preaching Christ. You see examples of this all throughout church history where Christians are martyred. From the, from the very beginning, Nero throwing up people in the Colosseum in order to be ravaged and killed. Lighting the city with burning Christians. You see it all throughout the history of the church. Where leaders are burnt at the stake. Not because they believe some sort of frilly doctrine. Not because the gospel is just kind of attached to their lives. They were actually willing to give their lives for the gospel. They refused to deny Jesus. Absolutely refused. We must know the gospel well. And we must have this kind of firm grip upon it. And what I want you to notice now is what the gospel produces. What it produces in the lives of individuals. It it doesn't necessarily stop there. As our text in Acts chapter 2 continues, we see that the gospel actually begins to form a community. The people that are saved, they come together and they begin to do these incredible things with one another as a result of the Holy Spirit being within them, as a result of their acceptance and their belief on the gospel. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. So again, those people whose hearts were made soft by God's word, who had been filled with the Spirit, they were now devoting themselves to these four core things within their worship services. The apostles' teaching, or God's word, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So they were devoted, the text says. Other versions say that they steadfastly continued in these things. 
They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were continuing steadfastly in their understanding of the word of God. Their hearts had been opened by it, and now they wanted their hearts to be filled with it. They had an insatiable hunger for the word of God. Are you hungry for God's word? Do you show by your action of grabbing your Bible and opening it and reading it, hungering after it? Do you hunger after God's word? Are you devoted to understanding God's word? Are you willing to put in the hard work of opening God's word and learning it? The early church was. Second, they were devoted to fellowship. Not some sort of loose fellowship. Not just some sort of after church lunch hangout. But a real koinonia. A real fellowship within the spirit. Third, they were devoted to breaking of bread, the breaking of bread, which is likely a reference to an early Lord's Supper meal. You see it says, the breaking of bread, kind of separating it from just normal breaking of bread. So it was some sort of special communion supper that they were devoted to. Fourth, they were devoted to prayer, or the prayers, again, implying some sort of formal prayer that they would pray in their public worship. So they devoted themselves to the teaching and preaching of God's word. They were devoted to true spiritual fellowship. They were devoted to the Lord's table. And they were devoted to prayer. But look, it goes even further. I want you to see how this newly gospel-formed congregation, how they interact with another in their daily lives. Look at verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So this gospel-formed community, all who believed, they, they had all things in common. And although they had all things in common, it became obvious that there were some people within the congregation who actually had needs. They, they were needy people. And so what the early church decides to do is to eradicate need from the congregation. They didn't want their brothers and sisters in Christ to be going in need. To be without food, to be without housing, to be without things that they would need in their lives. These people loved one another. And so they began to do what what any of you would do for somebody that you loved. If you had Father's Day sermon. For you fathers, if any of your children were in a need, you would certainly sell something so that you could give them some money to help them out. That's what this church was doing. They were selling their things, distributing all the money to any had need. What a testimony this is. And keep in mind, nobody was telling them to do this. This wasn't some sort of early Christianized communism where the apostles were demanding the people to sell all their things and to give one to one another so that everybody would be economically equal. These people had a true and a sacrificial care for one another. And you see this as you continue reading. They spent every day with each other. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. So the early church was basically spending every day with each other. They were having one another over for meals. They were praising God with one another. There was a a real harmony in the church a real love, a real care, all of which was brought about by their commonality in Christ, by their commonality in the gospel. This gospel-formed community is, is such an outstanding testimony, and it should convict us all. They had an understanding in their community that they needed one another. 
that I need you and you need me. We're all in this together. Windsor Christian Fellowship should be known as a church that is devoted to one another as a result of what the gospel has done in all of our lives. We all have the same older brother in Jesus. We all have the same heavenly father. We all have the same spirit residing within us. We study God's word together. We have one another over to our homes. It should not be uncommon for us to sacrifice for one another. The church should be unlike every other social group or association. I mean, you think of any other group. You think of like a a sewing group. Maybe a, a motorcycle club. A golf club. A gun club. Any kind of club that you can think of. They're all centered around that one thing, aren't they? People in the gun club, my dad just joined a gun club. Everybody's centered around guns. They all want to talk about guns. They all want to think about guns. They all want to go out and shoot their guns. They're all centered around one thing. There's a commonality between the people and what they are gathered around. I've often said that if I wasn't in ministry, I would probably be into the motorcycle scene and be part of a motorcycle club of some kind because I love motorcycles. I like to talk with other people who have motorcycles. There's a commonality among bikers. You probably even notice when two motorcycles go by each other, they wave at each other. There's a, there's a bond because of the bikes. But as Christians, we have so much more in common than motorcycles or guns or sewing. We have the person and work of Jesus Christ in common. We have the gospel in common, which transcends all other areas of life. Imagine living in this kind of community with one another. So as a church, we're to be committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're to be committed to our community of faith. And third, we are to be committed to the mission. Look at the end of verse 47. And the Lord added, day by day, those who were being saved. So the Lord was sovereignly continuing his work through this area, adding men and women to the church as the gospel continued to be preached. The the community continued to grow. The community of faith was on mission. They were following the example of the apostles. Turn over to Matthew chapter 28. Jesus was very clear to the apostles before his ascension in Matthew 28 on what the mission was going to be. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The mission of the church is to go and to make disciples of all nations. Jesus authorizes us to be on mission. And he promises that his presence is going to be with us as we go on this mission. As a community of faith, we have been dispatched into the nations. Preaching the gospel that we have believed so that more and more can be brought into the kingdom. As a church, this is what we must be committing ourselves to. We must commit ourselves to the mission of God. We must devote ourselves to evangelism. Thousands and thousands are dying without any knowledge of Christ in our own state. Romans chapter 10 says this, 
And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. You see, the gospel has to be spoken. The mission requires feet to move and mouths to proclaim. God doesn't simply wave his magic wand over somebody and save somebody. He sends us on a mission. He takes the message of the gospel and he plants it into the hearts of other people and causes them to come alive by the Spirit. And we've been commissioned to take this message to the lost and the dying world that is around us. To proclaim the message boldly. Confident that it is powerful to save. Confident that it is powerful to save even the hard hearts of manners who have spent their lives completely separated from God. When the Apostle Paul asked the question in Romans 10, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? Manners fit right there. Thousands of manners have never heard of the gospel message. Maine is considered post-Christian. If you talk to church-planting gurus and mission-minded guru-type people, they consider Maine and the Northeast to be post-Christian. In other words, all Christian impact has been lost. There is no Christian emphasis whatsoever in the state. My friends, we live on a mission field. Very literally live on a mission field. The need is not so much necessarily over in China anymore. The need is right here. As I've mentioned before, most people in the state of Maine are completely unchurched. They barely ever even walked into the doors of a church. A couple percent of the population in this state go to church on a Sunday morning. So for every 100 people you walk by, two to four people go to church on a Sunday morning. And that doesn't even necessarily, of course, mean that they're truly born again. In our town of around 2,500 people, we have two churches that I at least know of, both of which have an attendance of probably about 100 people. Many of the people who come, obviously some of you come from the surrounding towns, um, so it's not even all people just from Windsor. But if, if the numbers are right, 100 to 200 people in our town attend church either inside Windsor or outside Windsor on a given week out of 2,500 people 100 or 200 people go to church. And again, that doesn't mean that they're truly Christians. There is work to do in this town. There is work to do in our state. I was at a pastor's meeting this last week over in Waldeboro, and I was sitting at a bunch of tables with all of these pastors, and most all of the pastors that were there were not even from Maine. They moved to Maine because they see the mission field here. They see the need here. You might not realize it, but there are men and women, there are families moving to Maine because there are so few Christians here. There are so few churches that are actually centered upon the gospel who are willing to go out to their communities and spread the message of Christ. As a church, we have to get on this mission, seeking to preach his gospel to our town that has over 2,000 people who don't know Jesus. We need to be a church that commits itself to the mission. In our gathering here this morning, look at some of your faces. I know that you've lived in this town for a very long time. When we add up all the people that everybody here knows in this town, that's probably a lot of the 2,000. We know these people. We know what message we have to give them. Why aren't we doing it? 
We need to be a church that commits itself to spreading the gospel in this town. Part of our DNA has to become this mission. Planting churches. We need church planting to become part of who we are. This is what we see in the book of Acts. As the mission, as the gospel spreads, more and more churches are, being, are, are popping up all over the place. And as God continues to save men and women here, and as he begins to grow our church, we need to begin focusing on planting new churches in the surrounding communities so that other communities will have gospel witnesses in them. This is healthy. This is good. Where you have like a biblical church split and hack off people to go and plant a church over in Jefferson. To go over and plant a church in China. To go over and plant a church in Damascus, wherever. This is healthy. This is mission. Our state is in desperate need for more gospel-focused churches. And there are plenty of churches dying out. On top of that, there are plenty of churches doing all kinds of gimmicks and playing all kinds of games and smoke shows to get people to come to their church. But the state is starving for churches who are truly gospel-centered, who are on mission for the cause of Christ. Are we going to devote ourselves to these things? The gospel of Jesus Christ needs to be well understood. It needs to be clung to. The community of Christ here needs to be devoted to one another, to love each other, to care for one another, to sacrifice for one another. And we need to be on mission. The gospel, when believed upon, the gospel is preached, the community is formed, and then that community is dispatched to spread the gospel, and then more churches pop up. They preach the gospel, more communities are formed, and round and round it goes. The cycle goes over and over again. This is God's plan. This is what you see in the book of Acts. Gospel, community, and mission. May God help us with these. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you will do a great work in this town. There is nothing small about this town. When we consider the 2,500 people who don't know your name. Lord, I pray that you will burden us with the souls of these people. Lord, we pray that you will begin saving many. That we will begin making disciples right here in this town. That churches... We look back in 10, 20, 30 years and we see churches popping up all around because of the work that you're doing here. Lord, we pray that you'll raise up godly men and women who will seek to, to take a group of people and go plant other churches and to really strategize and think about your kingdom here in central Maine. Lord, help us to gain a, a deep, firm grip upon your gospel. Continue to change us by it. Again, giving us a burden for others. And Lord, I pray, finally, that you will help us to truly devote ourselves to one another. We will love one another as we ought. Sacrifice for one another, to care for one another. I pray this all in Christ.